Bernstein and Holmes, middays 10 to 2 on 670 The Score and 670thescore.com in Odyssey Station. After the game, I was asked a question. Was what was going through my mind and what was I thinking about and looking at when they was playing the National Anthem? Honest, I was point blank. Yeah, you know, I didn't think it was that bad. And I told the guys, oh, when, when I'm on the sideline, you know, I'm counting to see how many black coaches on the other sideline. Remember, now, I, I went to Grambling, and every coach at Grambling was black. Williams saw it as an innocuous statement, but Bucks head coach John McKay called Williams into his office the next day for an impromptu meeting. Coach McKay said, come on, Dougie, why don't you come to my office? So I went to his office, and the editor of the Tampa Bay Tribune was there, Tom McEwen. I went in, Coach McKay sat down, and I sat down, and Tom looked at me. He said, he said, Doug? So yeah. He said, you can't make that kind of statement. So I, I realized that, you know, what I was up against at that particular time when, when I got scorned for, for just saying what I thought was just a routine answer to the course. That is an excerpt from Doug Williams from the Between the Lines podcast, which, which lives inside of the athletic football podcast. I'll figure out how to talk in a second. <laughs> Our guest, Tashawn Reed, along with covering the Raiders, he also has put together this podcast, and it's fascinating. I'm making my way through episode one right now. Episode two is live, and he now joins us here on The Score. Lawrence Holmes, Anthony Heron here with you. Tashawn, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate y'all having me. Appreciate that uh, preview as well. That was, was nice. Yeah, yeah. Thank, thank you for for what you're doing. I'm, I'm curious, man. Like, what, what made you say, all right, let's let's use the backdrop of Black History Month, and and let's do a a podcast that is going to put a spotlight on what's happened and what the relationship is between the NFL and black players, coaches, administrators, etc. Yeah, so this actually started about 16 months ago now. Um, the fall of 2021 was when I initially pitched the idea for the podcast um, to my bosses at The Athletic, and um, it was something that we didn't necessarily have a, a set date in mind for it to be released. It just kind of worked out to where it lined up with Black History Month, fittingly enough. But, um, you know, for me, as a black man in America, obviously race is something that I've, I've always lived with that hasn't really been a choice, but... Uh, since I started to pursue this career of journalism and and began covering the NFL in 2020 when I got on the Raiders beat, um, you know, it almost wouldn't say obligation, but I but I really wanted to make use of my platform, my voice, uh, you know, to to speak on and highlight uh, some of the issues that that plague the community that I, that I come from, you know, and uh, not that I'm going to solve it all by myself. Obviously, no individual person can do that, but um, you know, doing my part, um, kind of in that. The, the bigger quest that goes beyond football of, of trying to push for equality, but also within the game, you know, giving, you know, the voices of the people that, that have to live with this every day, the players, the coaches, executives, et cetera, um, and, and sort of letting them tell their own story, um, express their feelings um, and give their thoughts about where things stand in terms of race and diversity in the NFL and, and where they think it needs to go and what needs to be done to, to push it towards a, a better place, you know, moving forward. And so, you know, I, I thought, just in the podcast form, I think there's a, a different level of emotion and kind of connection to the subjects that, that you get rather than just like reading their words, you know, on a website. Uh, and so hopefully that's that's accomplished throughout this, this five-part series. What have you found about the 
the lack of volume of, of opportunities that have been given to, to black head coaches in the NFL, because, you know, some of what some of what you hear people start to cite recently is that it feels like more opportunities are there. But it seems to me that so many of these are like a, a Steve Wilkes situation in Arizona where the Cardinals are hoping to be awful. So now here's the opportunity for the black coach to to get his shot, per se, or David Cully when the Texans are trying to be awful. He gets one season when they're trying to be horrible. And Ryan Flores, a few rebuilding seasons in Miami, and then he gets fired when they decide it's time for us to be good. So it feels like there, there's so much more of that than the situations where a, a franchise is ready to try to build with a black head coach. Yeah, it's, it's always a fixer-upper, right? Or, or it tends to be. Um, very rarely do you see I mean, in general, you know, coaches get fired because usually it's not a good situation, right? And so there aren't a ton of great jobs that come open in terms of being able to hit the ground running. But they do come open, and, and when they do, they, they tend not to go to black candidates. And so, uh, I mean, you know, like with, with the Texans even, I know D'Amico Ryans, they have a ton of draft capital, and they can turn things around pretty quickly there. But as you said, that team has been awful. Um, and then oftentimes, even when they do start to turn things around, like Brian Flores did with the Dolphins, I know they didn't make the playoffs, but – you know, they had a winning record in his tenure there. And then, you know, you have, like, even interim head coaches like Steve Wilkes, you know, who took over that Panthers team and they trade away Christian McCaffrey and then they almost make the playoffs, you know, albeit right. in a bad division. Uh, but they still, they were, they were in contention and, and it still isn't good enough. And so it, the, the barrier to get the job in the first place is much higher. The leash once you get it in terms of getting fired is much shorter. And then you tend not to see black coaches get a second chance. Um, and if they do, guess what? It's probably another one of those, those fixer upper jobs, right? Like we saw with Lovey Smith. And so, um, you know, the, the deck is stacked against them, you know, and really in all facets in terms of, of those head coaching ranks. Um, and it's been interesting to see that continue to be the case compared to the progress we've seen in other areas, such as GMs. There's eight black GMs now, which is a record. Um, there's five black team presidents, which is a record. Um, you know, black quarterbacks are taking over the league. We just had two black quarterbacks face off at the Super Bowl for the first time. And so it seems like almost the league and its owners are willing to allow it to happen elsewhere. But when it comes to the most, you know, front-facing individual of a franchise, which is the head coach or the quarterback usually, um, you know, seen as the team leader, um, the orchestrator, um, you know, the, the intellectual in the building, um, black coaches just haven't been able to break through there. And it's not for a lack of qualified candidates. I mean, we all know that. I mean, Eric Bieniemy's resume, you know, goes on and on. It's, it's obviously much better than the two Eagles coordinators who just got hired. And so it's not about that. You know, it's a lack of intentionality, um, you know, to increase diversity amongst those ranks, you know, whether that's due to racism or something else doesn't really matter. Um, it's, it's all supporting, you know, that, that overall systemic issue um, unless, you know, organizations are willing to be intentional about changing it. And that's just something that we haven't seen. All right, now give me a little bit of room here, Tashawn, because there's something that you mentioned in episode one that I think played an active role in why we're seeing a change with the Chicago Bears. And that's the, the, the ban on black players. Now, we had an incident here where during the 100th celebration of the Bears as a franchise, they debuted throwback uniforms from 1936 and the those uniforms when they displayed them when they had the models come out that's the first time that black players had worn that uniform now 
the president of the Bears didn't seem to have a grasp of that era of football. Since then, since then, I think that he's gone out of his way to actually move in the right direction. So I here's what I want to ask. When you talk to people about that stretch of time where black players were banned, how many people actually knew that that's a thing that happened? Oh, I don't think people understand that, like, the league started. I don't think it's known that the league started with black people in it. You know, obviously, Fritz Pollard being, you know, one of the first two black players and then becoming the first black coach, and then they took it away. You know, I, don't, I think it's just kind of the thought that, oh, it's always been black players in the NFL, you know, or, or a breakthrough was had at a certain point, but that wasn't the case. And they didn't reintegrate by choice. You know what I mean? Like it was uh, essentially the Rams were moving from Cleveland to L.A. Uh, and, and the city said that they couldn't use their stadium unless they signed a black player. That's the only reason why they did it. And, and even then, after that, for about another decade, the, the amount of black players was, was marginal until a competitor emerge in the AFL and they start going to HBCUs and signing a bunch of black players and actually competing with the NFL and doing better in some facets. And, and I'm not, they didn't do that out of the great good of their heart. Like they did it for, for business reasons. They were a bunch of oil tycoons trying to make money. Um, but even still, you know, it, it's, it's always taking these existential threats to force the league to act, whether that's having black people in the league at all or having black coaches or black executives, or whatever it may be. Like, this league was not designed for, to include black people. It was it was designed to exclude them. And, you know, I, I think people, they forget that, you know, when they talk about, oh, well, there's, you know, a bunch of black players make millions of dollars, and the coaches do too, and why did, what did they have to complain about? Like, you know, so much more money than they would make elsewhere. Well, you know, like, like that wasn't, they didn't want to do that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, if they had it their way, they never would have been allowed entry into this league in the first place. And so... That's that's the part that people have to keep in mind and not lose sight of. And even once these people start making money, that doesn't mean that their concerns are no longer valid. You know what I mean? Like I talked to one coach, Clarence Shellman, who was the Chargers offensive coordinator back when, uh, you know, they had LaDainian Thomas and then Phillip Rivers and they were top five offenses every year. And he wasn't even getting interviews. And he said it got to the point where he could hardly look himself in the mirror because of, you know, just, just the lack of self-worth that he felt, you know, going to work every day. Without knowing, without knowing that he would never achieve that career ascension that he felt he deserved. And so even though he was making good money, he wasn't happy. Um, and it was really affecting his mental health. And like we can't exclude that just because these guys make a bunch of dollars. You know what I mean? And so um, all that collectively, you know, I, I think, you know, and I think most times when people point that out um, or, or try to counter, you know, these people's gripes, it's, it's not really like for a practical reason or a logical reason. They're just trying to find something else to cover up you know, why they don't like talks about race and diversity. You know, it's, it's almost like a straw, straw man, you know, arguments try to just use something to, to cover up how they really feel about things. And so um, a, a lot of it is sort of disingenuous anyway. But when you really sit back and examine it, it doesn't hold much merit to begin with. We heard uh, an excerpt from your conversation with Doug Williams leading into this interview here. And we actually I'm going to get to see both Doug Williams and James Shaq Harris this weekend in New Orleans. I'm calling the HBCU Legacy Bowl for nice. Sirius XM. So I always enjoy getting to interact with them and just the, the encyclopedia of, of sports history, of, of black athletics history that they both are. When you compare a, a sport like football and its, its continued 
you know, society's continued issues with race, but just how the sport of football differs from where baseball, it's known that Jackie Robinson, he broke the color barrier, and that's sort of this seminal moment. How does football differ in that regard, just in, in its perception of, of how, you know, black athletes have been a part of the sport's history? Yeah, I think part of that is because the NFL, there's so many players on a team that, it doesn't like players aren't viewed as having the individual impact as let's say the NBA where like, you know, Michael Jordan won six championships. It wasn't the Bulls won six championships, at least how it's viewed. And so with the NFL, the only position that really has that sort of like, you know, impact or it's viewed as having an impact is quarterback. And historically black people weren't allowed to play quarterback, you know, even after the league was reintegrated, it took a long time before, you know, a black quarterback broke through. And even then, they weren't commonplace. They, they were held, stereotypes were held against them. They weren't given opportunities. Um, you know, and we started to see that change a bit with Doug Williams. Um, but even then, it was a little bit delayed, you know, until we saw, you know, Mike Vick come along, Donovan McNabb and some others. And now today, it's hit a, a new level, of course, with all the quarterbacks, Patrick Mahomes, Jalen Hurts. You know, the list goes on and on of all the black quarterbacks today. But for most of the league's history, it wasn't commonplace to have, you know, several high caliber black quarterbacks at the same time. And so I think that's why they get a little bit detached in terms of, you know, the, the, the role they played in the league's history, because I mean, offensive linemen get lost with time, you know, even great defensive players kind of get lost in time. We more so remember the 85 bears, not so much the individuals who were on 85 bears, if you get what I'm saying, or the 2000 Ravens, you know, Ray Lewis kind of stands out, but even still. Um, And so I, I think, that's where it comes in is the lack of black quarterbacks historically. Now that's starting to change. And so we'll see moving forward if, if that starts to shift in terms of how black players are viewed in, in course of the history of the game. But I think that's probably the reason why, you know, it differs compared to, you know, the MLB or, or the NBA. So you made a Jordan reference. There was a tweet about Lonzo Ball. Are you a Bulls fan? No, no, I'm actually a Lakers fan, and so okay. I kind of, I've kind of been rooting for Lonzo Ball, you know, since he's he's moved on, and like, is this kind of sad, man? I mean, it looks like he, I don't know, I don't want to write him off as, you know, knock on wood, but like, it's looking, you know, it's not looking too good in terms of like it's, it's looking very Brandon Royish. Mm. Yeah, unfortunately, and like, I don't know, I just, I just like, even though he's not on Lakers anymore, like, I would, I would have liked to see him succeed, and it seems like, unfortunately, injuries are gonna keep him from from doing so. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a very scary thing. It's, it's, it, we've been talking about it a little bit this morning. We'll get back to it in just a second. Let, let me go on the field with you for, for a little bit. Derek Carr, you covered him. He's now no longer with the Raiders. The Aaron Rodgers thing I'm fascinated by. Where do you think Derek Carr ends up? And do you expect that Aaron Rodgers will end up leaving Green Bay? See, the thing, I, I'm going to answer that in reverse. I think Aaron Rodgers is going to end up staying. And for that reason, I think the place where Derek Carr ends up is the New York Jets, just because he's going to be their best alternative that they can possibly get unless Lamar Jackson becomes available via trade, you know, for some reason. Uh, and I know, like, people have the cold weather thing with Derek Carr and, like, is he going to handle New York media? But, like, once you get through with all that, like, he's a good quarterback and he's better than Jimmy Garoppolo or – you know, insert whatever other name you want to throw out there besides Rodgers and Lamar Jackson. Um, you know, I think with the the skill position talent they have up there, they have a solid offensive line and some extra parts. 
you know, I, I think he could do some, and they have a good defense. That he would he would automatically have the best defense he's ever had in his career. I think the best Raiders defense he ever had was ranked 20th in scoring throughout nine seasons with the Raiders. And so, um, you know, to give him a chance to compete in the AFC um, and also would feel, you know, their biggest need, obviously. And so I think that's where he, he ends up. And I think Rodgers, after he gets out of his, you know, four-day, uh, you know, <laughs> darkness and the darkness. Yeah, yeah. I think I think he's just going to end up staying in Green Bay, honestly. Because really, outside of the Jets, there's not too many other options that make a lot of sense. I know people are throwing the Raiders out there because of Devontae Adams, but this team isn't close to competing. Like, they just aren't. You know, they have so many holes elsewhere off into the line, the entire defense, basically. They're like, especially if they have, have to go a bunch of draft capital and, and spend a lot of money to go get them. Like, the offense will be really good, but, I mean – He's not winning a championship or anything like that. So what's the point? You know what I mean? Both on his side and and for their side. So, it, you know, and else it doesn't really. You know, there's not too many options. I don't think as weird as it sounds for a quarterback as good as Rodgers is. Do you think Devontae regrets his signing there? Because I mean, look, I I feel like both he and Aaron may have made a mistake. Aaron in handcuffing the the Packers so that they couldn't really re-sign Devontae, and Devontae going to go be with his boy even though his boy isn't one of – he's a top-half quarterback, but not one of the best quarterbacks. No, because, I mean, you know, he still he still signed a $140 million contract uh, in <laughs> no state tax uh, state. That's true. And uh, gets to live in Vegas instead of Green Bay, Wisconsin. You know, no, no, no offense to my Midwest people, but it's a bit of an upgrade. You know what I mean? And he grew up a Raiders fan, uh, you know, Growing up in East Palo Alto, you know, has this dream team, and so I don't think so. Like he's obviously not happy with the win loss record, but um, you know the team they they do have a lot of avenues to to try to get another quarterback. Whether that's they have the cap space to sign somebody or trade for somebody, or you know they pick number seven overall, number seven overall, and so they could potentially uh, draft the quarterback this year. And so you know if they end up with a dud at the quarterback this year, and then things go bad again, and I'm sure he'll be disgruntled, but. Um, I, I don't. I don't think I would qualify Devontae Adams as, as a loser when you look at some of the uh, the other things he gained by making that that move to Las Vegas. We were having the discussion earlier in the segment about opportunities, second chances that don't seem to come frequently for blackhead coaches. Uh, Josh McDaniels has had a few bites at this apple. Both yeah. the jobs he has taken, a job he didn't take very famously. Is, is he any good as a head coach? I don't know. We'll see. Um, you know, I, I think he's. We know that he's a good offensive coordinator, uh, but he has struggled both with the Broncos and the Raiders in terms of game management. Um, you know, decision making. Um, you know, the locker. I know there were some questions about was he holding the locker room together last season. Like the locker room was fine really the whole year. Like they've been through much, much, much darker things. Um, you know, the year before with what happened with John Gruden and Henry Ruggs and et cetera. And so losing a few games this season wasn't something that was going to fracture. You know, the locker room, but. He definitely still has a lot to prove in terms of his ability to be to be a successful head coach. Um, you know, on on its face, I think the Raiders, you know, on paper they look a little worse than they were last season. You know, they were six and eleven, but they blew like five double digit leads. They lost like nine nine one score games. Um, you know, when they made the playoffs the year before, they won a whole bunch of one score games, and so they easily could have been a six win team when they made the playoffs that year. And so. Uh, the mar- the margin was pretty slim, is all I'm saying. Between them being, you know, six and eleven and being a playoff team this past season, 
they do have a lot of roster holes. I think that's the bigger concern if you're a Raiders fan, more so than McDaniel's coaching ability, is they really don't have a good core of young talent, largely because of the draft failures of John Gruden and Mike Mayock during their tenure. Um, all those first round misses that just go on and on. Alex Leatherwood, you know, is part of the reason why he's a Chicago Bear now. Uh, he's one of those guys. And so they basically need help in all three levels of the defense, offensive line, and quarterback this offseason. So that's basically your entire team. You know what I mean? And so uh, that's a lot of holes to try to fill in one year. It's probably not going to happen. And so even if you had a great coach, which, you know, McDaniels obviously hasn't proven that he is, it's going to be tough winning, winning games when you have that many roster issues. And so this is going to be a multi year build, which. You know, for a Raiders franchise that hasn't had much success in, in basically 20 years, that's not what you want to hear. But there's no shortcuts when you have that many issues. Like, you have to be patient. You have to allow them to build it from the ground up and see where you can go with the future. And, uh, you know, that's something that, you know, the Raiders aren't the only franchise like that. The Bears are, are another one. You know, it's part of the reason, you know, why they have the number one overall pick and like $100 million in cap space. But obviously, you know, having resources isn't enough. you got to got to make the right decisions. But you kind of got to just wait and see how it plays out. Go support Tashawn Reed and his Between the Lines podcast. If you're a subscriber to the Athletics Football Podcast, you already know what it is. But if you're not, you should go and check it out. The episodes are really, really good and detailed. And we've had texters saying that they've already learned stuff that they didn't know about the NFL. And and you're doing a great service on trying to educate the, the football fan about everything that is the history of this game. Tashawn, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Have a good one. That is Tashawn Reed of the Athletic. It was fun. It was fun. Yeah, I was I'm happy, man. I I was uh I was planning to head down to New Orleans this weekend, but my niece is playing really? her final game at Northern Illinois, oh, and okay. you know she she's like one of the best players in the Mid American Conference. So the the family's going to go out and and see her off in her last home game right. up in DeKalb. But I was I love the idea of this bowl and the the combine that's going on right now right it's a they, they begin the week with an hbcu combine and you know it's one of those things where we could have sat, sat on the phone with tashan and talked about so many different things for for hours but you know the you went several seasons without a, a player from a historically black college or university getting drafted into the national football league and so you know you get a bunch of smart people together and say well what's the way we can go about attacking this the nfl combine is going to come up next weekend so they began the last couple of years here behind the leadership of doug williams first black quarterback to win a super bowl as a starter and james shack harris first black quarterback to ever be an opening day starter for an nfl team when he was there with the rams and the, the two of them set up this hbcu legacy bowl they work closely with scouts from around the national football league with some of the senior bowl staff as well and they set up an hbcu combine where Nearly, you know, I think it was 31 out of the 32 NFL teams have representation there uh, yesterday for the combine. And then there'll be an all-star game that's coming up this weekend. It'll be broadcast on television on the NFL Network. And I'll be calling the game uh, with my guy Rob J on Sirius XM. That is awesome. We need to take a timeout. When we come back, I want to ask Big Ant a question about this Patrick Beverly thing. All right. And maybe, maybe you, too, in your car or at your office – would like to answer the question that I'm going to ask. So stick around. We will do that next. It's the Bernstein at Home Show. Lawrence and Big Ant here with you until 2 on the score. Dan Bernstein, Lawrence Holmes. 
Middays 10 to 2 on 670 The Score and 670thescore.com in Odyssey Station. This just in for you. The Bulls nearing a deal to sign free agent guard Patrick Beverly for the rest of the season. He ostensibly is a point guard, but he really plays more off the ball. And he can play make, he can bring the ball up, but he just is one of those guys who fits in. I don't see him as ball dominant as Russell Westbrook might have been. You know, he's a guy that will feed to the, the stars. He'll augment them probably a little bit better than, uh, than a ball dominant guy like Russell Westbrook might have. That was Casey Johnson. He was on Mully and Haw talking about the inevitable signing of one Patrick Beverly. P-Bev, Marshall's own, is going to make his way back to the west side to play professional basketball. And it looks like he's going to be the buyout choice that the Bulls make. When you hear all the things that people say about Patrick Beverly and what people are hoping uh, th- that Patrick Beverly brings to this team was like, well, now they'll have some toughness, and, you know, and, and now they'll have someone in that locker room that can that can really get under people's skin and talk to these stars. Here's my question, Big Ann Heron. What does it say about the way this Bulls team was constructed that you need to find someone like this at this point on what is seemingly a lost season? I mean, it It doesn't speak well of the mentality that Zach Levine has played with, that DeMar DeRozan has led with. I mean, it is, it is great to bring players out and to work out with them. It's great to be a congenial personality that, that makes it very easy to get along with you. But in the end, you, you also do need people to be – that that true spark plug uh, with with a level of aggression and it, it doesn't seem like this team has has had much of that and the fact that we're this deep into the season you're still looking to add that how much does it really give you it gives you intangible now tangibly he's going to be a dogged defender which you need that as well so he's going to sure. add that but if his main piece is more likely to be just someone who who kind of forces others to be accountable for a lack of focus, a lack of urgency, a lack of temperament, then does that really matter if he's only going to be here just over 20 seasons or 20 games? You know, do, do you want to have a guy who can continue to add that for seasons to come? How likely is that for a player at this point in Pat Bev's career? But it, it's just it's another example that doesn't speak well to the roster that, that AK has built. No, it, it, it does not. And – the idea that you have to go outside the house to find someone to come into your house and say, guys, your house is burning down, when there have been other people that have done it. I mean, it's you brought in Dragic. He said the same thing. Mm-hmm. Nothing changed. Um, I, I, I'm not expecting any sort of miracle, like whether it was Russell Westbrook or Patrick Beverly. I, I think that the, this roster – has a bunch of really interesting and talented flawed players. Yeah. And and I I hope that they're taking a, a calculated risk and bringing in Pat Bev that he's going to maybe help out and make IO better. Maybe he is the person that can prod Patrick Williams to get to the best version of Patrick Williams, but there's a danger in that too. I was telling Mully and Hall this. You can you can play the game of well now we'll bring in the enforcer type. 
<laughs> we'll we'll bring in the guy that's going to hold everybody accountable, uh, and you end up losing a player. Right. Then he he elbows Patrick Williams in the ribs. It's like, oh, we we lost P. Will for the rest of the season because his right. ribs got to heal up. Or now you just got a fractured locker room. Which you know, does a fractured locker room make you much worse? I, I suppose maybe it doesn't. But you you want to be building from the point you're at. And I do wonder about that. Like Rajon Rondo, it's still a little bit enigmatic the brief time that Rajon Rondo was here with the Bulls because there's there's a way that he played the game that I think was beneficial for young players to see while at the same time it turned into this thing where he kind of sided with the younger guys and you had the, the elder element yes. of the roster that was in place that didn't vibe with Rondo. So it was, you know, it, it was just this kerosene on an already uncomfortable situation. So I wonder what, what mentality will Pat Bev come in here with? If he's, he's a guy who grew up a Bulls fan, who's been excited for years at the prospect of playing in Chicago. So now this opportunity is here, and it may be brief. So is, he just, is this just going to be something that's kind of just a, a side hustle until he goes and tries to find a winner next season? Is he just going to have fun with this? Or does he legitimately step in here saying, how do I add to the Bulls? How do I make the Bulls better than what they've been? A texter says, I feel like P. Bev is here to whip the vets into shape more than helping the young guys. Um, what makes you think that he's going to be able to do that? That's a like, longer process. You know, what <laughs> evidence do you have? I, last I checked, he was playing on a team that is also right. not in the play-in right, right now. Yeah. And that team had LeBron on it. <laughs> so so I, I, I think that whether it's the Bulls or people who cover the Bulls or fans of the Bulls, like looking at this as – now they've got what they need. They they need this shot in the arm. I I think you're asking way too much of one guy and, and what his ability might be to I don't know, help them make it to the play in. Like I I don't know. I, I'm fine with it. I'm happy for, for Patrick Beverly. I love watching him play. It, it it just feels very like, oh, now we've got this magic solution to all I of this. Have- I wouldn't have thought it was the end of the world even signing Russell Westbrook. You know, it, you weren't going to have to give up assets for him. My my curiosity would have been, as my curiosity is now, you're adding a player who who what makes him good and what makes Russell Westbrook great is the intensity that they play the game with. And so I do think there's a positive to adding that to not only the locker room atmosphere but to the on-court environment, a team that seems to lack urgency a lot of times around the court, who seems to lack basketball sensibility, situational awareness. You add a basketball IQ to this thing, and so if you get 23 games out of him and Io gets something from it, Pat Be- or Patrick Williams gets something from it, I think that can be a positive. It's going to be up to Billy Donovan to, to try and make sure that that this all kind of comes together as well as it can be with a new personality, a new big personality that you're adding into this what still feels like it's it's an impressionable mix of talent. We shall see what ends up happening once that whole thing becomes official. Now, what's this I'm reading in the text chain? You, you yeah. figure something out? You know what? I heard you and Dan talking late last week, and I got to say, man, it, it it led me to realize there's a way where me and Dan are like super identical with something that took place actually today that a lot of Chicago has been at the same time, like in unison, trying to get involved in. All right. We will talk about that next. It's Bernstein and Holmes. Big Ant is in for Dan. I'm Lawrence. We'll talk to you on the other side of a quick break here on The Score. 
Bergstein and Holmes, middays 10 to 2 on 670 The Score and 670thescore.com in Odyssey Station. I've seen Beaver in Canada a million times. They're, they're, they're unmistakable. It's the Bernstein and Home Show. Dan is out today, but he's never far. Big Ann Heron is filling in for him and apparently found out. This, this is weird because there aren't a lot of people that are like, they're openly admitting that they are like Dan Bernstein <laughs> in any sort of way. Right. So you have definitely yeah. piqued my interest <laughs> In, in what it is that you think you and Dan are twinsies on. I I heard a conversation being had on Friday's show where you guys were talking about the, the Bruce Springsteen concert tickets going yes. on sale today. And when Dan described the, the yes, and, uh, you know, Courtney Cox and, and all that, the show we went to, we went and saw Bruce at the United Center years ago. Courtney Cox did not make an appearance, although I was looking for her. But you and Dan were talking about the Bruce Springsteen concert tickets going on sale. Dan's wife approaching him, letting him know, like, hey, these tickets are going on sale. Let's make this happen. And Dan's immediate response being, no, thank you. Not necessarily having anything against Bruce. Uh, not necessarily thinking that he's awful or that his music stinks, but just that there's not much of an interest in going to see him in concert. Now, for me, I had almost an identical conversation with my wife that morning. And so listening to you guys talk about that, I ended up hitting up Dan and letting him know, you know what? I had the same, like an almost blow-by-blow, word-for-word conversation with my wife that went down exactly the same way. The only difference, the main difference in the end was I said, if you want to go, I'll roll. But just know, I have no interest in seeing Bruce Springsteen again. And it's not, again, I got nothing against the boss, but there's going to be 100 people there sitting right near us amongst the thousands that will be in attendance <laughs> at Wrigley who've seen Bruce Springsteen dozens of times who will be singing every lyric of every song right along with him. And it's a good show. Like, I was a band nerd. I played the trombone. I love, like, a good 1980s saxophone solo. That's what half the concert is, just Bruce standing to the side watching somebody play the saxophone. No issues with that. I've seen it already. It was enough. Seeing Bruce once was enough for me. Yeah, but you you saw him once. And, I mean, your wife's not from New Jersey, is she? No, no, I mean, she's from the East Coast, but no, definitely not Jersey. So she she doesn't have the full-on Jersey vibe. She's not a sports yeah, writer. Yeah, Dan's wife <laughs> is from New Jersey. <laughs> like, she's basically from the place that, that Bruce right. is. I, I, I was surprised because this is one of those things where, you know, I'm not joking that he could literally walk to the concert. So it's not even that he's he's being put out. You know, if if, if this was, hey, Springsteen is playing in Milwaukee. Right. And we want to get tickets. Like, I get that. No, I'm not driving to go see Bruce Springsteen. Is there any reverse of that for you and your wife? I mean, she just loves live music in general. I'm trying to think of what show I would want to go see that she wouldn't be interested in. Bone Crusher. Of, oh. All oh, right, yeah. 
yeah, like if Buster Rhymes came to, well, you know, she'd be into that too. Um, I'm trying to think. She'd pretty much be down for most things. Because she went and saw Stevie Wonder without me one time. You know, of course, I'm traveling. I'm on the road somewhere. She yeah, bought- Stevie saw her. <laughs> It was yes, they were very equal <laughs> in that regard. <laughs> Stevie was playing catch with it before the show. Stevie brought the football out, had the baseball glove, like, all right, hey, Miss Heron, let's play some catch. Don't tell anybody though. Um Yeah, the, that clip that circulates sometimes of him catching the mic stand while he's up on stage uh-huh. with Paul McCartney. Something's amiss. Golf used to say that to me all the time, and I was like, Oh no, man, you are silly. And then now that he's implanted that in my cerebrum somewhere. Now I, I just can't unsee what Stevie sees. Now I'm, he's, I'm starting to turn. I'm trying not to go down that conspiracy road, though. Yeah, but it's, it's a good conspiracy. It's a fun little conspiracy Very. road. So you right. guys went to the Stevie Wonder concert. So we did not. She went to the Stevie Wonder concert because I was out of town. So that, that was the problem because we tend to buy these tickets months in advance with very little knowledge of what my schedule is exactly going to be when the time comes. Am I going to be in New Orleans for some sporting event? Am I going to be on the road for a Big Ten game? Is the NFL draft or the combine or something going to be going on where I'm on the road for whatever? So she'll just buy stuff months in advance with the thought that, all right, if I'm around, I'll roll. If I'm not, she'll just go with a friend. Or if it's not something she wants to go see by herself or whatever, then all right, she'll throw them back on StubHub or whatever website she kind of resell tickets at. So she went to the Stevie concert without me because I wasn't around. Of course, it was an amazing show. So for me, that that's probably the peak of my short list at the moment of who I haven't seen live would be Stevie. There's other options beyond that. Like We went and saw Elton John when he was at, uh, at Soldier Field. Again, talking about venues you can walk to. We walk over to Soldier Field. We checked out Elton John. That was an amazing show last year. But Stevie Wonder would be kind of, you know, peak concert experience that I haven't yet gotten to to actually check out myself. What, what would be your, what's your power rankings number one right now for something you haven't seen? So, all right. You know Afia, right? Afia, right. my best friend, uh-huh. television producer extraordinaire. Right. We were at the Bulls game a couple weeks ago, and she said, you know, I've been, I've been online trying to get these Beyonce tickets. Mm. Now, I'm not going to be online for Beyonce tickets, but she said, uh-huh. she said, look, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get a suite for it because if Damn. you get a suite and you look See at you, the – See, Okay. Well, but, but the idea being <laughs> that if you get a suite – yeah. Then the tickets per person are a lot less expensive. Kind of like renting a house somewhere. Like let's go right. rent a house together. And ha- yeah, right. And uh-huh. and if I were if I were going to see a concert at this point in my life, unless it's a an intimate venue, mm. that's probably the way that I would like to see it. Mm-hmm. So she said to me, she's like, if I get the suite, would you go? And I immediately said yes. Okay. Now I've. I'm I'm a I am someone who thinks that Beyonce is relevant. I was a fan of her in Destiny's Child. Right. She she makes very interesting videos and is there debate so, about that? Is there debate about no, Beyonce's I, relevance? I, I, okay. No, no, right. but but whether or not she's as relevant to men of a certain age oh, versus women of a certain age okay. is a whole but but I found myself going, all right. It's close, uh-huh. and I know that she'll keep touring because she makes a gazillion dollars. Right, but I was surprised at how quickly that I said yes. That that's ordinarily a one where I go, 
Uh, let me think about that. <laughs> we went and saw Beyonce in the rain, and we actually we did we decided at the last second, and because it was raining, there were still a few for whatever reason there were some walk up tickets still available. I think it was one of those where they they added another date because Soldier Field sold out real quickly, and so at the last second we said, you know what, let's walk over there and just see. Or she she met my wife may have like looked online and saw there was a couple of still you know paired up tickets that were still available. So last time she came to Soldier Field a few years ago, and sometimes we'll just we go like sit outside and just listen to a concert, you know, near the stadium or whatever. But this uh, time in the rain, we said, you know what? The rain is dying down. Let's go ahead and check out Beyonce. And by the time the show started, yeah, rain was pretty much gone. It was still a little bit of a mist in the air, so it was kind of atmospheric. And, you know, Queen Bay, you know, she came out there and did her right? thing, man. It was a good show. And there were plenty of guys out there. It was, it was a good show. You know, kind of multi-demographic kind of audience. The the crowd was out there. It was loud as hell, but it was a good show. Yeah, I don't I don't really dig on festivals. I do like small venues. Mm-hmm. The last the last concert that I went to, me and my brother went, and it was dope. It was yeah. Diggable Planets. Oh, okay. Diggable yeah. Planets at? at the Metro. Ooh. And that was perfect because, you know, there there were no seats and you could mm-hmm. just kind of vibe out or dance or yeah. whatever. And I'm kind of watching them do their thing. What was that? That was maybe 2019, maybe 2018. Mm-hmm. I'm not big because my anxiety will go through the roof mm. in, in big crowds like uh-huh. that. And and I also think that I had I had a concert experience that I cannot I have a hard time believing can be topped, oh. and 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 that's the you went the, Prince? the Prince, yeah, the Prince okay. concert <laughs> at at the Super Bowl uh, for his for his press conference. Oh, oh, okay, all right. <laughs> so I I was in the room with that big ant, okay. like I was there, yeah. and I knew as soon as he said, "I'll I'll take your questions," he was not about to take any questions. <laughs> so I forgot about that. <laughs> Yeah, he turned around and started playing. <laughs> I forgot all about that. So so I got to see a 15-minute Prince concert in a room I'll, with I'll like 200 now. people. Turns around. Yeah. Bow, bow. Right. Bow, 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 bow. I, I, I believe he said, I believe he said, contrary to popular belief, I will take your questions. Guy that was like next to me stood up and asked something. Prince turns around and starts playing Johnny B. Good. One, two, three. And, and I, I was just sitting there because you saw like the whole band was on stage, like with instruments set and everything. Right, and right. man, they cleared that place out. Like you couldn't go anywhere. Like the bathrooms were off limits. Like they had all the instructions for you. Don't look Prince in the eye. Like all this other stuff that's going on. So, so between that and then seeing him at the actual Super Bowl, uh-huh. I've right. seen my favorite artist twice. Yeah, in less yeah. than twenty four hours. I don't know if that's ever going to be top. Like unless I'm in a room, unless I'm in a room with fifty people and rock him. Uh-huh. I don't see how that's going to be topped. Uh-huh. No, I, I but, I'm, but I'm I'm opening my mind to this Beyonce thing, and uh, if he comes up with with the suite, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna look at it for the spectacle of it, mm-hmm. and 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 watching you know how sixty thousand women react to their queen. <laughs> hey man, there might be. There might be like thirty five thousand women and twenty five thousand dudes. Like it, the the crowd, the demographics of the crowd do. Uh, 
maybe 40, 20. Maybe it'd be 40,000 women, 20,000 guys. The show we went to, it was a good, a lot, good amount of, of male participants in the show also. They were out there. Uh, but, yeah, if Afia's going to do that, man, t- tell her to hit me up. I, I, All right. I'm sure if, if I'm not interested, I'm guessing my wife will be because she's already been looking at tickets for that one too. Yeah, you guys do live across and the street. they are astronomical. Yes, they are. When we come back, <laughs> I had a conversation with Olin Krutz about offensive line play in Justin Fields. Mm. I want to play it for Big Ant, and I want to play it for you and get both of your reactions next here on The Score.